0: okay welcome to totally sort of the podcast it's sort of like a review show and totally like catching up with your best friend i'm chris and I'm Darren. We're going to let you know what kind of geeky goodness we've been watching,
1: reading, playing, and listening to over the past week. We'll tell you what you totally need to check
0: out and what is sort of worth skipping. Sounds good. Have you got any uh, anything totally random you want to talk about?
1: Yeah, it's uh, totally random for anyone else listening to it, but it won't be for you because it was something that we actually did together.
0: I vaguely remember this. <laughs>
1: So, on Saturday night, we found ourselves in the same town together, being Toronto, for one of the few times we actually get together in person a year, and we saw the band Deer Tick play at Lee's Palace.
0: Yeah, it was great. I was uh, previously completely completely ignorant of Deer Tick, but uh, happy to, to learn about them. They're a good band.
1: Yeah, they put on a great show. So, I had a brief uh, little bit I wanted to talk about about Deer Tick, because... Okay. Uh, Deer Tick, for me, I credit as at least one of the influences that got me to stop pirating music. Interesting. So back in, I think I traced the time to about 2009, I was in a cafe in my neighborhood and I heard a song on the radio playing over their speakers and I was like, I really like that. And I have this new Shazam app on my phone, I'm going to try this out. So I pulled up Shazam. Got It came up as Deer Tick, and I thought, I really like that. I'd like to hear some more of them. So I went to iTunes, and I downloaded the album, and by the time I left the cafe, I was listening to the whole album. Yeah. And that was kind of that uh, instantaneous access to things like that was sort of what got me to stop torrenting because the immediacy was more interest to me than the cheapness and convenience of just uh, pirating stuff. I kind of still see that to this day as sort of the moment where I decided, all right, maybe I don't just need to torrent entire discographies. Well, that's uh good to know. So you have something
0: random other
1: than uh, Deer Tick, which we did together.
0: Yeah, I uh, I went axe throwing this week. How medieval! It was pretty awesome. I've never done it before. Uh, have you ever been to an axe throwing place? I haven't. Okay, so I think it actually started in Toronto. Um, At least, like, the one I went to was a a franchise, and I guess there's, like, 12 or 13 of them. But what a cool night. It was a whole bunch of people from my work, and uh, we went and had a little training and then did a little tournament, and it was so much fun just hucking a a hatchet at hunks of wood.
1: Was this a team-building exercise?
0: Well, it was, like, a work-sponsored exercise, but... uh, but it was, you know, the, the intro was um, just you kind of get some training from the, uh, the coaches there who are really very good at uh, like teaching you in a very short amount of time. And, uh, and then we actually had a tournament and it was really funny to see some people transform as soon as things got competitive and they'd been just goofing around. But as soon as there was competition, uh, the axe throwing got very serious.
1: So how hard is it to actually throw an axe and hit a target?
0: It was, um, I probably hit the target within my first five or six throws, so it was really amazing. And the, the thing I lo- loved about the evening was that um, I've done, you know, if you compare it to bowling or any kind of like kind of vaguely physical skill based activity, uh, I felt like I was actually getting better over the course of the night. So by the end of it, I was hitting, you know, like two out of three, maybe not bullseyes, but on the target. And it's really, really satisfying.
1: Nice. Yeah. That sounds like fun. I have seen it advertised in Toronto. Maybe I'll have to check it out sometime.
0: Yeah, it's really worth doing. I would uh, recommend getting a group together and going out for for a little axe throwing fun.
1: Now, my question though is, do they serve alcohol at the axe throwing? They do. Excellent. And... Kind of scary. Yeah,
0: it's it's pretty pretty self-contained. The one rule that they really enforce very strictly is you're generally doing a one-on-one competition with somebody, and uh, you basically you don't have to throw totally in sync. But there's a red line that uh, you know if you're going to retrieve your axe, the other guy better not be throwing. <laughs> <So that's, laughs> that, that seems like a wise plan. It was uh pretty simple, but. Uh, once in a while, someone got barked at very loudly if they were about to uh, break that rule. Yeah, I can see that. So shall we get to our week in geek? That sounds like a good plan. So, what have you been watching this week?
1: Uh, all my stuff is basically uh, PVR-based. Uh, And so what tends to happen is that I get behind on stuff and then uh, do a little binge to catch up. This week, I focused on my CW shows. Okay, so you're talking CW
0: superhero shows, I take it?
1: Yeah, so I, I have to get over this, but I still have that compulsion from back in the days when there was virtually no genre stuff to watch to feel like I have to watch all of it. Yeah, And I have continued to do so with the CW stable of hero shows. So I'll just uh, talk about them each quickly. Sure. The first one was Legends of Tomorrow. I've been quite enjoying this season, and it all comes from the fact that the show has embraced and leaned into this idea that they are not, in fact, legendary heroes. They are bumbling losers who somehow managed to stumble through these missions and come out with positive outcomes this season and it's actually made it a lot more fun to watch and this week's episode which i watched did a groundhog day theme episode the uh, the time loop which i'm a total suck i'm a total sucker for those if, when they're done well, sure. Yeah, but I'll watch anything that uses that looping day <laughs> over and over again. And uh, it was it was really well done in this one. And there's the one scene where uh, she eventually, the woman who's going through the time looping day uh, or a couple of hours, eventually starts trying to convince people uh, that she's in this and trying to enlist their help. And so she talks to this one guy and he tells her, oh, just like Groundhog Day. And and she's like I don't know what you're talking about. He's like it's a t it was a movie back in the you know back in the 1990s about nice. where there was a time loop. And he's she's like he's like okay just the next time you have come through it we don't have to have this whole conversation just tell me Groundhog Day and I'll know what you're talking about. And so the next time she goes through the loop she just walks into the room and says Groundhog Day and he looks at her and goes You're having a looping day. <laughs> <laughs> And so it, it was well done and it was fun. Nice. Uh, the second one, second show, is Arrow. Okay. So there's six seasons in, and this season they're doing for the third time a storyline based around people having discovered his identity, that Oliver Quinn is the Green Arrow. Okay,
0: so, so six, six seasons and they're doing a third story about this.
1: Yes. And in this one... The, the, the way they've gotten out of it every time is they have somebody up else dress up as the Green Arrow, go out, do things. Oliver Quinn makes a public appearance and it's like, oh, I guess you're not the Green Arrow because the Green Arrow is out there doing stuff. That's,
0: that's so like 1970s sitcom. And so this
1: time he has the, the guy who's been his partner through the show, John Diggle, uh, dressed up as the Green Arrow out there doing stuff. The problem I have with this is that John Diggle is black, which is not a problem for me, for someone (laughs) being the Green Arrow, but when you are the whitest of the white guy, Oliver Quinn, Stephen Amnell, Green Arrow, and now you want to convince people that you're not the Green Arrow, so you're going to have someone else go out there and pretend they're the Green Arrow, nobody seems to be going, why is the Green Arrow suddenly black? Hmm. Well, isn't
0: he, like, fully hooded, though?
1: No, he's got an eye patch mask
0: and, and a hood.
1: His face is fully exposed, like, mm-hmm. other than having basically like a hoodie
0: hood over it. All right. Well, that does seem problematic.
1: And it's so funny because it goes into the, sh- in the show. Uh, when Diggle is doing this, he's got an injury, so he can't actually pull and uh, shoot the bow. So people in the show are commenting on, there's something unusual with the green arrow, he's not actually using his bow anymore, and I'm screaming at the screen, and he's black now!
0: (laughs) Well, that's uh, that's a bit of a continuity problem, for sure.
1: Yeah, next is The
0: Flash. Yeah.
1: Which, uh, I've heard uh, Kevin Smith has directed a couple episodes of The Flash. Yeah. And so he's talked about it, and the formula that they use for the show, and they have it on a on a big whiteboard in the writer's room, and it's the sort of three foundations of the show, which are uh, heart, humor, and spectacle. It's a pretty good formula, yeah. It is. My problem is, with, has been with The Flash the last little while is that it's way into the heart stuff, that it, everything is trying to pull your heartstrings. And now this season's storyline revolves around... Uh, the, the Thinker is the villain this, in this season. Okay. And the Thinker has manipulated things to fake his death and have Barry Allen uh, framed for his death. So Barry Allen is in jail. And now we have constant interactions in meetings, uh, like prisoner meetings, visitations with Iris, where they talk about how hard it is to be a part and what if we can't. Sounds very soapy. It really is. And uh, some of it, there, there are elements of the hard aspect of the show that really work and that are enjoyable. But this one, it's just like we're doing the same thing that we did last season as the hard aspect of your show. Mm. I just like a little less
0: of that. Yeah. How many seasons in is
1: The Flash now? They're three. They're into three. On the plus side, uh, the elongated man is a regular character on the show now, <laughs> which is sort of a great pull. <laughs> uh, <laughs> did you like that? Unintentional. It was totally. And uh, Katie Sackhoff, who was Starbuck on Mm -hmm. Battlestar, she's playing uh, this villain, uh, villainess blacksmith, and she's totally cool to see on the show. So uh, The villains are always the scene-stealers of The Flash show, and they've been uh, continuing with that.
0: Yeah, The Flash is the one uh, of those shows that I've watched the most and that I would most see myself going back and watching more of.
1: Uh, lastly then is Supergirl, which was for me and has been intermittently another bubble series, something I think maybe I probably don't need to keep watching this, but every time I think that I'm done with it, they do something really cool and then suck me back in. (laughs) So at the beginning, like I watched a couple of episodes and I was like, it's okay, but I don't really need another show. And then they made Martian Manhunter a main character on the show and okay, well now I'm in
0: (laughs) because... So okay, so in the comics he's a green guy wearing like almost nothing and a cape. Uh, yeah. How does that translate to the TV version?
1: So he is a shapeshifter, right? Yeah. So for most of the time he is disguised as the human who whose identity he took over. Okay. But then when they need him to be the hero, they do the full-on green-skinned Martian hmm. manhunt Martian manhunter cape. He looks great.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yep. I am. Very surprised to hear that, but that's cool.
1: Yeah, so that kind of sucked me back in. Next, it was... It's kind of trudging along a little bit, and I was again thinking, all right, maybe it's time to give this up. Mm-hmm. And then they go and
0: do Legion of Superheroes.
1: <laughs> and I, I think I
0: sent you a picture the you, other night. Yeah, you sent me the little teaser. With the Legion flight rings.
1: Yeah, so they've got um, Mon-El, who is a Marvel lad... Saturn Girl and Brainiac 5 all on Earth having been displaced in time in Supergirl and they all know and revere her from the future the same way. So again, they've kind of Rejigged the Superman aspect because it was always like Superboy or Superman was the model for the yeah. Legion of superheroes, but they've kind of done it like Supergirl was the revered one in the Legion of superheroes
0: Interesting. I I think it's great that they're mining good content for uh, for the TV show I wonder how the the DC diehards are taking that
1: yeah, I don't know Uh, so I mean I really liked it despite the fact That I mean, I I like the the writing, I like the characters they chose to use. For some inexplicable reason, they chose to make Brainiac 5 uh, blue like a smurf with crazy white Christopher Lloyd, sort of doc brown, back to the future hair, which he's green and has like perfectly coiffed blonde hair in the comics. I I don't understand that choice at all.
0: I I don't think green and blonde is going to look much less ridiculous on screen than blue and white.
1: Yeah, but at least he'd look like the way everybody <laughs> expects him to. Because it, not only just in the comics, but in the animated series, in anything they've ever done, they've always kept his green skin, blonde hair. Yeah. So I don't understand that choice. But again, going back to uh, Kevin Smith, he talks all the time about what he wants in a superhero movie or show, and it's like, make me feel like I'm a kid again. And when I saw that Legion of Superheroes... Uh, Mm -hmm. sort of build up and then finally when they're like all three of them together and they grab the flight rings and put them on it was like I was right back to do you remember Dana McCausland yeah she lived a couple doors down from you when you were growing up and and she had a massive comic book collection but the Legion of Superheroes was her jam and I was not into them at all at the time but she basically let me go in take books and read like the entire run of Legion of Superheroes and I felt seeing them on the screen, like, the way I felt as a kid reading those comics, so it worked. I'm probably back into Supergirl for a while longer (laughs) again.
0: Well, good luck extricating yourself from some of those shows, because that sounds like way too many mediocre superhero shows for my taste, but... Yeah. You know, I never thought we'd get to a point where uh, we had to pick and choose which superhero shows we'd watch.
1: Yeah, I know, I still think uh, that I... Have this fear that like if I'm not watching it, it's gonna go away, <laughs> and so I have to watch, I have to try everything.
0: <laughs> okay, well you keep that up.
1: All right, we're gonna move on to movies for you.
0: Yeah, uh, this week I was uh, looking for something new, and I ended up with uh... w-
1: when you should have been going out to watch Black Panther.
0: I know I still haven't seen Black Panther, but uh, you know whatever. Uh, I ended up seeing Blade of the Immortal. Which I'd seen a trailer for and thought, oh yeah, this looks good. And I put it on and was sucked right in and completely blown away. This was the coolest action movie I've seen in a year or two. So do you know anything about Blade of the Immortal?
1: I don't, not at all.
0: Okay, so um, really all I knew about it was that it was based on a manga. Uh, So the manga came out in 93 and ran to about 2012. The movie version is directed by Takashi Miike, who I knew primarily from uh, 13 Assassins, which is probably my favorite uh, favorite samurai movie. That it was, is great flick. Yeah, that was maybe four or five years ago. So this one is more stylish, more over the top. It's almost in a Zack Snyder territory in terms of stylization but the cinematography is very, very realistic, and the, the palette and everything is very realistic, but with just some framing and uses of color that really pop things out to make them just, just jump. So the look of it was one thing that I loved. Uh, the other thing was just the character and the dialogue. He's kind of a... The, the character um, is... Basically, uh, a reluctant immortal. He's been cursed with immortality. And so he's very world-weary, and he already had a bit of a sense of humor. So he has kind of a dark sense of humor. And it's just that kind of gunslinger vibe where, you know, he doesn't want to fight, but people keep making him fight. Yep. So really, really cool character. And one thing that just was a pleasant surprise was... The subtitles, the dialogue, like the story was pretty good. The villain had a good motivation. He wasn't just out to kill everybody. But the dialogue was actually pretty good, realistic dialogue and had some good some good humor. So this was just an unbelievable, over-the-top, swords and blood and a little bit of magic, epic movie.
1: Now, dialogue, is this a, uh, is it English or is it subtitled? Uh,
0: it was subtitled, but uh, right. the... So the script really, um, you know, even whether it's dubbed or subtitled, the, the, the script in these things tends to, to come across kind of stilted. But uh, it was really good, really good dialogue. Some good humor and um, good performances. The other thing that was really, really cool, the way they did, if you think, think about Frank Miller's Sin City and the way they did Black and white with selective use of color. Yes. This movie managed to achieve almost the same thing, but with a normal color palette. And, and the way they do this is basically by giving all the main characters a really vibrant color pop somewhere. Either their whole outfit or part of their outfit has some really bright color. And you don't see that color anywhere else in the movie. So the movie looks, you know, it's full color normal. It's not color treated or anything. But, uh, you know, the bad guy has this kind of teal kimono that he always wears, and this little girl has this purple kimono. And it just, um, gives the whole thing a really neat visual shorthand that, uh, was just one of many, many stylish things in the movie that I I couldn't get over how cool it was.
1: I love finding those, uh, stylish, stylistic hooks that, uh, draw you in and catch your attention.
0: Yeah. So, uh... I know you weren't terribly impressed by the trailer for that one, but uh, when you get a chance, you'll have to check out the full movie. I will. So I noticed you had a new card game that you were playing with the boys. So this is uh, Unstable
1: Unicorns. It's made by T-Fury, which is a t-shirt company. The unicorn is a regular appearance on their t-shirts. My
0: kids have been big fans of their shirts for the last couple of years. So what's the verdict on... uh t-shirt companies making card games it's pretty good
1: there's nothing revolutionary about it it's sort of uh it really reminds me of two games uh killer bunnies Mm -hmm. and uh exploding kittens okay and i think
0: you've probably played both of those exploding kittens or kittens in a blender no exploding kittens okay (laughs) we've got to keep our kitten card game straight
1: yeah no, the Exploding Kittens one. So it has the collecting uh, unicorns aspect of Killer Bunnies, but it has sort of the quick, uh, quick play of Exploding Kittens and the limited sort of card pool. There are right. a huge variety of different kinds of cards, but there are sort of four set styles of cards, each of which do specific things. The goal being to raise your stable of unicorns to seven is the winning
0: number, while
1: everyone else is trying to put their own unicorns into play and kill or otherwise dispose of your unicorns.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it seemed seemed nice and simple to learn, and uh, the art was pretty cool.
1: Yeah, and it actually plays pretty quickly, and there is a, a lot of interaction. I would call it a good appetizer game.
0: Do you think that one's going to be sold in stores, or are they just going to be selling online?
1: I don't know. I got in when they were, I think, funding it on Kickstarter and grabbed an early copy. So check it out if uh, you can, Unstable Unicorns.
0: This week I downloaded uh, something new off the App Store. It's called Starman, and it's a kind of point-and-click Adventure. It's the featured app of the day, and I'm a little dubious as to how it got that stature. It's one of these puzzle games that looks really pretty, kinda like Limbo or Monument Valley. This one is really, it's monotone, it's very 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 dark, and the puzzles are all kind of light-based, so you're trying to find, you're wandering around in like a factory, and trying to get little light cubes or light spheres, and all the puzzles involve light in some way. But uh it really is you know, it's it's that nice kind of soothing, uh slow to explore, non stressful game that is kind of interesting to check out, but certainly is not proving to be anything revolutionary insofar as what I've played anyways. Yeah,
1: you're playing it uh phone and iPad?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'll certainly give it uh give it a couple more days, but uh, don't know how it snagged app of the day kind of designation at
1: you mentioned uh, Limbo in your discussion of the sorts of games. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that they have a not a sequel to, but a follow-up to Limbo out?
0: No, I hadn't. Uh, do you happen to know off the top of your head what it's called?
1: Yeah, it's called Inside. Okay. I had downloaded it and thought I might have time to play it this week and would be in a position to talk about it
0: today, but I haven't. So it's... Uh... Not necessarily a sequel, but same creative team, that kind of thing?
1: Yep. Same company, same general idea, and it looks, uh, at least from the limited bit, I've seen it. It's a side-scrolling, you're walking, you're a young kid.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Cool. I'll have I'm, to take uh, a look for that.
1: Yeah, I'm okay. going to,
0: this week, I'm going to get into that. Sounds good. What have you been listening to this week?
1: Under the Influence, Terry O'Reilly's podcast on the uh, CBC.
0: Yeah, I enjoy that one, too.
1: Yeah, so this is the one that we've mentioned before, that we had the the quiz about what it used to be called. Right, which was?
0: Oh, I was going to quiz you again. It was The Age of Persuasion.
1: That's right. So this week was uh, episode seven of the seventh season, and it was on comic book ads. Oh. So it was actually quite fun to listen to and... It sort of fits in the line of what we're talking about. So this, these are the ads for X-ray specs, one-day karate courses, personal submarines, and, of course, the mother of them all, the Sea Monkeys. Yeah,
0: sea Monkeys were a fantastic story.
1: Yeah, so they talked about how generally almost all of these ads and all of those products were all coming from uh, one person, this guy named Harold von Braunhut, who started marketing them in comic books in the 1970s and it kind of caught on when he got a comic book illustrator, Joe Orlando, to draw this ad for Sea Monkeys. And at that point in the podcast, after mentioning Sea Monkeys a couple of times, he mentioned this ad by uh, Joe Orlando Illustrations for Sea Monkeys and said, any kid who read comics in that age can close their eyes right now and visualize that picture. And the, the truth was that the moment he mentioned sea monkeys I could I was the only image I could see in my head Same here. so I didn't even need to close my eyes at that <laughs> point but this is the picture of the sort of humanoid sea monkeys uh family hanging around outside of their castle in yep. the water which just vivid in my mind and uh so he went on and talked about a bunch of the other ads but one of the other ones that I mean I can clearly see were the uh, Atlas gym ads
0: mm-hmm the kid getting uh, sand kicked in his face. Sand
1: kicked in his face. The x-ray specs one. Mm-hmm. The, the guy looking at his hand sure. with the glasses on. It was funny just hearing him talk about those. And it just, how many comics did I read that I saw those things in the back?
0: I actually met a guy at a comic convention a couple of years ago who had sort of, who was absolutely fascinated by all of those little gimmicky things that you could order out of the back of comic books. And had actually built a business for himself around sourcing and selling all like x-ray specs and fart capsules and smoke bombs and stink bombs and all those little things. And the cool thing was most of these items were still in production somewhere, but he had to, to really dig and hunt around for them.
1: Yep. So one of the interesting factoids in the episode was that... Uh, Harold von Braunhut's Mm -hmm. uh, relatives still hold uh, residual rights to Sea Monkeys. Okay. And so they knew from court filings how much she was making a year on residuals from Sea Monkeys and what her percentage was. And the end result was doing the the back calculation on the math. Sea Monkeys are still selling $18 million
0: worth a year. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. It's I find it amazing, too, that um, it's one of those things that you would have thought by now uh, it would have been totally eclipsed by by counterfeits or knockoffs or copycats, but I think somehow they have still managed to maintain, you know, some actual legitimacy. And obviously, if they're making $18 million a year, they've they've done a good job of that. Yep. That's really cool. So,
1: yeah, that was... Uh under the influence terry o'reilly's podcast season
0: seven episode seven comic book ads i have to check that out sounds good okay well i think it's maybe time for a new segment that we've been trying to roll out uh which is a bit of a, a deep dive or into a geeky nitpick so it's time for you're ruining it for everyone Okay, this week on You're Ruining It for Everyone, we're going to talk about our favorite Marvel team leader, Cyclops. So, Uh, Are you going to say bad things about Cyclops? No, I've got no problem with Cyclops. I just have a little bit of a problem with what's on his face. I want to talk about the whole Ruby Quartz optic blast shenanigans. So how did Professor X ever figure out how to put ruby quartz in front of this kid's eyes?
1: I guess it depends which version of Cyclops's origin you're actually looking at.
0: Well, regardless of the version, I mean, like, what kind of trial and error occurred for Professor X to know that this was the material that was going to work for for this kid?
1: I, I can I can either give you the the completely geeky. Uh, way in which the Ruby Quartz visor is supposed to work uh, or I uh, was doing a little digging on this and I saw one quote from uh, the the science fiction exchange stack it's a site where people basically talk about science issues and the the one quote from one of the users uh, I'll give his name it's John O is his screen name but he says The ruby quartz visor is actually made of pure (laughs) plot-onium.
0: That's that's pretty good. I mean, this is just one of those things that has always driven me nuts because, you know, I never really quite got how it worked. And the more you think about it, the more it breaks down. Are these red sunglasses, are they filtering his beams? Are they blocking his beams? Because if they're just blocking his beams... You know, wouldn't there be just this constant kind of, like, explosive, you know, spill out from his glasses all the time if he has these mountain-leveling optic blasts shooting into his sunglasses at all times? You'd think people would notice that, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. So, So that's one problem, is if they're actually stopping beams that are always on. I don't know, that seems a little bit far-fetched for me. Um, but the other one is just, like, how did they ever figure out to do this in the first place?
1: So I have less of an issue with how they figured it out than I do with the idea that, yes, they would be constantly pushing against this envelope of, uh, of his glasses. Yeah. The extremely geeky deep dive on this is that the reason why... Cyclops can close his eyes and they don't blow through his eyes Mm -hmm. is that his body, his mutant power goes beyond simply being a channel to this other dimension where the energy comes from. His entire body uh, resonates with a psionic frequency that matches the the energies from this other dimension. And this is something that Professor X could read, and that Ru- the explanation is that Ruby Quartz actually vibrates with the same psionic frequency as Cyclops' body so, and the so energy what? So from the like other dimension. Xavier was
0: like, hmm, check out the vibes on this eye-blasting kid. That seems vaguely familiar. Let me get wander down to the mineral shop, because I think I have felt those same vibrations somewhere
1: else. There's an even better uh, previous, ex- because uh, Cyclops has a number of different origin stories. It's been rewritten a few times. Yeah. One of them is that as a teenager, he went to an optometrist uh, because <laughs> he was having headaches. And the optometrist figured out that ruby quartz lenses would stop his headache, Then the headaches would... Uh, were the precursor to his powers coming on, and then when his powers came on, he was already wearing ruby quartz lenses see, see, because a, they were the a only thing good, that would stop his that's, headaches.
0: That's a pretty good uh, retcon or, you know, excuse or rationale if, if you can somehow imagine why uh, an optometrist would have exotic minerals uh, and exotic materials sitting around that they would, you know, test children with.
1: Yeah. <laughs> And then the uh, there's another background which they rewrote at some point for Cyclops's origin, which has him uh, in the orphanage, and Mister Sinister actually being the headmaster at the orphanage mm-hmm. there, particularly to experiment on the Summers kids, and knowing the future that he would develop these powers, he had the ruby quartz available.
0: Hmm. Yeah, the other the other weird like super specific detail that somebody has written in at some point to try and explain why things work the way they do is that uh, uh, Scott had some sort of brain injury as a child that prevented his mutant power from working properly. So, yeah,
1: because the idea is that he, his eyes are basically a channel to another universe where this energy exists in its purest form. Mm-hmm. And if he hadn't had the brain damage from the parachute crash that his parents that uh, sent him, him and Alex out on, yeah. if he hadn't had the brain damage, he would actually have
0: the ability to open and close that portal at will. Right. Well, anyways, I just had to raise that one as, you know... Stretching the bounds of my capacity to accept ridiculousness, because you know you gotta accept a lot on a team like X Men or in a comic book in general. But that that's one for me that they just never came up with anything remotely acceptable. Having said that, Cyclops as a character and power set, that's still pretty cool. Yes,
1: and I, I think it's always uh, okay to go back to what John O had to say. It's
0: made of plotonium. Plotonium. All right. Sounds good. All right. It is now time for our take home top three. Last week, I had tasked you with coming up with three books or book series, I guess, that you think you'd like to see translated to the big screen or maybe a TV series. So what have you come up with for me?
1: This was way more difficult than I thought it was. Hmm. Or maybe I made it more difficult than it had to be. Because (laughs) when When you told me this, I immediately went, okay, this, this, and this. And then as I listened to it or or thought about it over the course of the week, I realized that's really just the last three things you've read. (laughs) Maybe maybe you (laughs) want to go a little deeper on that. (sighs) And then I realized that there are tons of things that I'd like to see made, but I tried to narrow it down to three different things. One being something recent I've read, Mm -hmm. something I've always wanted to see, and something from... Uh, a while ago.
0: Sounds good. So
1: what do you got? So I have three, but they're in no particular order. Okay. Although the first one I think that I would probably start with would probably wind up as number one is the uh, King Killer Chronicles, uh, Patrick Rothfuss's books. Okay, yeah. Which we've only got two of the trilogy thus far, but I've kind of been hooked into that story from the beginning.
0: That's, that's interesting. I think uh, it's very cinematically... I think it's very movie-friendly or TV series-friendly. Uh, I hope that the the book series stays as strong as it started. I have some worries about that, but uh, for anyone who doesn't know, this is Patrick Rothfuss, The Name of the Wind is the first book.
1: Yeah, I thought it started to wander a little bit in the second book. That being said, I, in terms of it being cinematic, most of the first and second book would basically be... Uh, a more adult harry potter in essence him at the school of magic at the university it would be like a adult harry potter series basically yeah
0: there's definitely a lot of parallels
1: there you know the the description of the book uh, right off the top the the quote right from the book jacket I have stolen princesses back from sleeping Barrow Kings. I burned down the town of Trebon. Just the sort of listing of him as being sort of the greatest hero of his generation. And now I'm going to sit down and tell you my story. I was sort of hooked right from the beginning.
0: Yeah. I think uh, I, I I love that series too. And I think it, it definitely would, would translate well. I could see a cool HBO series on that.
1: Yep. And, you know, everybody's looking for the
0: next Game of Thrones. <laughs> For sure. All right. What's next?
1: Oh, so next I went back, and this was one that I found in reflection because it's one I would have immediately abandoned the idea of, except that your uh, subtext to my task was that I could be (laughs) assured that they would do it properly and I would and be done the way I wanted. Yeah. So it's uh, Elektra Assassin Ah, graphic novel series. That's a cool choice. Electra Assassin was an eight-issue, uh, limited-run series on Epic Comics back in 1986 through to 1987, uh, written by Frank Miller, art by Bill Sankovich, uh, who, in my opinion at the time, were at the peak of their talents. Yeah, uh, and very much uh, firing oh, on, on all cylinders. Yeah, so Electra Assassin was for me, and, and for me was at the time and still is pretty close to one of my favorite writers and probably my favorite artist in comic books getting together at the peak of their powers and firing on all cylinders on a book for me electro assassin is probably one of the most perfect eight issues of comics in a in a limited series uh, it's not for everyone because it's a pretty uh, eclectic adventure it's a pretty psychedelic uh, both in writing and in art but
0: yeah it's, it's really almost kind of uh, psychedelic's a good word for it very trippy very violent very um by turns comedic and dark so if this was translated to a, a tv show or movie what kind of visual style or like what kind of creativity would you see happening in there
1: I don't know, and I, I never th- would have thought that this could be done until I saw them do Legion right. on TV last year.
0: Yeah, and that's a great example.
1: So, I mean, I think it's in there, and in terms of the story, if you wanted to do it, now is the time. Because the the central story of uh, Electra Assassin is that the President of the United States... Uh, has been uh, infected by a demon with the by a demon and is essentially prepared to get into power and do the will of the devil and electra's basically i mean she's tasked to go kill this servant of the demon who is the president of the united states
0: So, so you think there might be a bit of a receptive audience to A fantasy about killing the president right now? Is that what you're trying to say? Well, and
1: and, and to the general idea of the president of the United States being infected by a demon prepared to do the will of the devil while in office. That doesn't seem so far-fetched as it might have in the 80s. So I think if they're ever going to do it, now would be a good time.
0: Good call. Good call. All right. What's number three?
1: So number three, I tried to reach back beyond the last few books I've read into something that I'd read uh, quite a while ago. Uh, Have you ever read the series
0: of The Change by S.M. Sterling? I... no. I think you've maybe told me about the series before, but I haven't read it. So, there are about nine
1: books now, and I have not made it all the way to the ninth, but uh, if we were to make a series out of this, I really would only want them to do the first
0: three books. So, is this the kind of post-apocalyptic, no-technology series? It is. So the uh, central foundation uh,
1: for the change is the first book uh, and the title kind of says it. It's called Dies the Fire and the premise is that for some reason technology has died and they don't get into any real explanation because nobody knows what happened until way later in the series. But it's not just uh, electricity that's not working. Something has happened with uh, the way physics functions hmm. so that guns don't work either because for some reason gunpowder doesn't produce enough of a charge to fire a bullet uh, all of those things that you would think well you could get it working without electricity or technology also don't work because there's just something gone with the energy of that chemical and physical reaction that will no longer let things function the way they used to so it's a Everything is thrown back into sort of medieval level technology. Interesting. The, the crazy thing, the way it's written, or the sort of funny thing to read, is that basically, like the the Renfair people and people and historians of medieval uh, history mm-hmm. and basically wind up becoming the the rulers because nobody else knows how to fight with a sword, <laughs> nobody else knows how to make armor, nobody knows how to make a bow except for these people who are sort of the Ren Faire geeks and historical society right. people are suddenly at the top of the ladder in terms of
0: having useful skills in this world. So maybe a little bit of wish fulfillment on the part of the author there?
1: <laughs> yeah, So, uh, but for me, I'd like to see like the first three books made into something because uh, for some reason the books really... Uh, I, I don't know S.M. Sterling's background, but... The books kind of become an ode to wicca mm. like it really becomes uh, sort of how wicca is like the greatest and the books really start pushing it as like this is the true religion right. and ha- and all the other people like how can you not believe this and and then a- as the series goes on it starts to bring in supernatural aspects which play minimal to no role in the first uh, sort of arcs of the story and then in the later books it's really everything that it's about, and I thought it became weaker when that sort of uh, bogged it down. Yeah. But I'd love to see the first three that are just about the reformation of society and along medieval lines done. I think
0: it'd be a lot of fun. Cool. All right. Well, I appreciate that uh, that roundup. I was a little surprised to not hear uh, Joe Abercrombie on that list. That's the first
1: one on my honorable mentions list.
0: Okay. I'll give you my quick honourable mentions
1: list. That would be uh, the First Law Trilogy by Joe Abercrombie, Mm -hmm. the uh, Gentleman Bastard series by Scott Lynch, Mm -hmm. Neil Gaiman's Sandman, which I know there are constant plans to make that, and I don't so much want to see a Sandman series. I'd like to see the death character from there get her own TV series, because she's a fascinating character in those books, so I'd let them go make their... Whoever's gonna make Sandman and I'd like a, a death series on Netflix. I think that would be great as a, that as would a be very series. Cool. Um uh J. Michael Stravinsky's Rising Stars, it's a comic I've always loved, and uh Mage, the Hero Discovered by Matt Wagner.
0: Oh yeah, that's a great series. Cool. Well that that's has uh, been a fun little rundown. I like it. All right. Now I have to give you something to
1: do for next oh, week. Okay, what's my assignment? All right, your take-home top three for next week are the three most personally influential science fiction TV series. So I don't necessarily... Uh, I wasn't necessarily thinking that you're going to give us the best three science fiction television series of all mm-hmm. time, but really the three science fiction series on TV that were influential or meant something specific to you.
0: Okay, cool. Now... Um... Is sci-fi, are we uh, is, are we talking hard sci-fi or just like sci-fi slash fantasy?
1: No, I'm going hard
0: sci-fi, okay. no fantasy stuff. Okay. All right, I will get to work. Well, I guess with that, that brings us to a close for this week. I think that is about all we have time for. Okay, uh, you can catch us every week at totallysortof.com or in the Podbean app, and you can also find us on iTunes and in the Google Play Store.
1: If you liked what we had to say, hated it, or just had an opinion of your own to share, please uh, leave us a note in the comments section, or tweet us at, @totallysortof. totally, sort of.
0: Uh, so by all means, like us, uh, recommend us to your friends, pass it along, we'd appreciate it.
1: Our intro song is punk and is used by the
0: kind permission of the artist Cabana Black. So you can check our show notes on the page for uh, links to everything we talked about.
1: Until next time, I'm Darren Hogan.
0: And I'm Chris McInnes.
1: And you have been listening to the Totally Sort of Podcast.
0: Talk to you later, buddy.
1: You bet, pal.